0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit—a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff. Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Air Microphones. Erlund microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Erlund, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to EHRLUND.SE for more info. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable
1: Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and with me is Jaime Gomez-Arellano, who you really should know a lot about because he's just a killer producer. And what I like about his sound is that he's doing his own thing. He uh, really gets much more organic-sounding, real sounds that sound like real people playing. And his productions are still modern, but they definitely sound like real people. And I know that a lot of a lot of people have critiques about modern production not sounding like real people playing. Um, he's worked with phenomenal bands such as Ghosts, Cathedral, Sun O, Electric, Wizard, Teresa's Plan B. He's also a drummer. And uh, this is an interesting one uh, for to me personally. It's from... Cali, Colombia, but lives in England. And so I want to know how that happened.
2: Uh, well, um, well, first of all, thank you for having me in your show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Um, well, it was... Um, I always kind of... I was listening to a lot of British music when I was a kid. Like, I kind of grew up listening to a combination of Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin all this British stuff, uh, to as well as, mm-hmm. as uh, some of the British metal stuff. Like I really liked Carcass and I really liked Paradise Lost. I really liked um, uh, Ball Thrower, uh, Well, you name it, a lot of these bands. So when I finished school, my parents said, oh, well, you should go to America to, um, to learn English. And I said, well, I'd rather go to England because I was more interested in Europe than the US, to be honest with me, with you. And um, and I just ended up convincing my parents to send me to London to do a year of English. And in that time I, I found about a SAE um, to do a degree in sound engineering. And then I kind of stayed here and that's kind of how I ended up here really. It was just like a, like a romance with um, European music, I suppose.
1: it's interesting most of the time people from south america go to the u.s yeah that's right my mom's from mexico my mom's from mexico she went to the u.s it's just not that common uh for people from there to end up in europe it does happen so i thought it was cool that you mentioned that you used to listen to paradise lost because i mean you just did the record that came out what Last week or two weeks ago? Yeah, last week, yeah. So maybe tell us a little bit about that, because um, Paradise Lost is one of those bands that, you know, when I was 13, they were already around for a while. Mm. Um, And they've just been around forever. You've always heard about them. Um, I think that in the States, they're not as well-known, but I know that they're a lot more well-known over in Europe. And they just, I've always thought of them as like, British Death doom um I don't know if that's an appropriate title or not for what they sound like but uh tell us a little bit about the new album what were your goals with it
2: well um I don't know if you're aware that I did the previous one as well uh, the, the previous yeah. record um but with the new one um, I mean they they've kind of they've kind of gone full circle the band, as a band you know they they started as a as you said as a kind of gothic doom. Kind of band, and then they they evolved into they evolved really far to a point where there was something like the patch mode, like in the in the late '90s, Um, and then they just kind of kind of gradually like you know coming back into into the roots. And the previous album, The Plague Within, had some elements of of the kind of more melodic part that's lost from the mid '90s, late '90s. With a tinge, so that's what uh,
1: I remember.
2: Yeah, with a tinge, kind of. But going back to the heavy stuff, and then when Greg sent me the demos for the for the new album, I was I was like, Jesus Christ, this is just like it's it's a doom record, hundred percent. Um, so <clears throat> you know, I just kind of like like with every album I do, you know, I think a lot of metal producers they they kind of have their kind of method of doing things and. They used always kind of go for a lot of the same stuff, but every record i I make like i I have a clean slate, and I just kind of have a picture in my head of what I think it's gonna sound like and and with this album, I just wanted it to be do you ever do you ever get there <laughs> oh, well, no one ever does right <laughs> you know like the yeah you get you get close enough, I guess, and um but you know like I think. I think all of us, like, producers and engineers, we're all a bit OCD, and and we're never 100%, happy, you know? We can always be, like, 99% happy, but there's always, you know, that little thing when you're listening back, and you're like, oh, I wish I'd changed, like, 0.5 dB on that little bit. And
1: well, a- I think that, have you ever met people who are sometimes musicians or engineers who... Are really, really happy with how they sound. Normally they suck yeah. and normally they don't get any better. All the best guys I know continually think that they're, you know, they continually hate themselves. Um, they always think that they could get way better. They're always studying.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, like an example I like to give is that I remember Jeff Loomis. Mm-hmm telling me that he took guitar lessons a couple years ago or something. I think he told, or three years ago. <laughs> wow. I was having a conversation with him, and he was he, it, it, I didn't ask him if he was taking lessons. He just mentioned it relevant to the conversation that he was studying that with his guitar teacher, something we were talking about. And it was like, wow, if this guy, who is one of the very best guitar players in the world, in the genre, mm-hmm. still thinks he needs to get better and we'll still take lessons. What is everybody else's excuse for not? That's you know for thinking uh, that, great.
2: That's right. You know, like I'm I'm always I'm always studying, and I'm, I'm always um, you know talking to to other producers who are friends of mine and discussing techniques and and trying out new equipment and um, you know like with uh, Russ Russell and Andy Snape. You know, like occasionally we chat about stuff and and. Tom Dal-
1: both great dudes
2: yeah Tom Dalgety as well who's doing really well he's a great producer and you know we sit down and we talk gear and 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 I'm always learning always you know I'm always trying new things <clears throat> trying new new microphones new software new drums new guitars new amps uh, new techniques and always trying to learn and I always I always have this mentality that I, I want to make the next record better than the last one even if the band is really different you know, always want to do it better. Um, and the way to do that is just to
1: just keep going. So it, on the topic of always learning and always trying to get better, I, I'm i wondering, were you recording when you were still, when you lived in Colombia or did you start doing that once you got to England? And if you were recording in Colombia, how did you go about learning there?
2: Um Yes, I started in Colombia, I think. I think the first recording I did, I was about thirteen or fourteen years old, um, and I had like a like a band with with a couple of my best mates at the time, who are still my best mates these days actually, um, and and we just had this kind of band for fun. And I uh, my mom is a singer. She's um, she's released like thirty albums or, so, or something like that. She's very very talented oh, wow. musician uh, in Colombia, like South American folk kind of music. So because of that we had um we had a bit of like basic kind of equipment at home. We had a like a mixing desk and and then I just kind of okay, so how can I connect this? How can I record onto stuff? So I found a way of connecting it to a cassette deck which you know at the time was really exciting, but you know, it's it's just an RCA connection at the back of the desk into the input of the deck. So it wasn't it wasn't hard, but I was <laughs> discovering I was discovering all this by myself, and you know, like playing with the EQs and stuff. It,
1: it's hard when no one teaches it to you when you're just a kid. I mean, I remember before I knew anything, I, uh, I'm talking when I was 15 or something, and I figured out how to record onto a cassette deck with an RCA. I was like, wow, <laughs> yeah, I know how to, con- I know how to connect something. Yeah, you feel pretty special, um, and, yeah. and it
2: is quite special, you know, like a. Uh, I don't know how old, how old you are, but I'm, I'm 35. And back then in Colombia, we had no, we had no internet. We had no, you know, there was no one teaching that kind of stuff around. You know, there will be like the guys, some of the guys doing live sound, and that was it, really.
1: Um, uh, well, I'm 38, so similar age. Yeah. But um, I mean, dude, I didn't grow up in Colombia. I grow, I grew up in Atlanta. Right. And still, there was like. Nowhere to really learn this kind of stuff. It it just didn't exist back then. You had to, you know, I feel like either you had to grow up like you did into a family that does it, or somehow you needed to make friends with the local studio guy. That's what I did when I was a teenager. My band went to record at a studio when I was like 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. And I just made friends with the engineer who owned it. And uh, little by little, I would just go there more and more and he would teach me a few things and that's, that's kind of how it started but there was n- yeah there's no internet or anything <laughs> no way to really like yeah really learn this stuff otherwise
2: Yeah I think these days it's really easy you know like you just go on YouTube and, and there's a lot of information there and in, in forums and stuff um but um yeah so I um I kind of got better at it, at you know, recording and, and then I started recording some like friends bands in my mom's house. Um and then I started getting really pally with a friend of mine that was doing live sound. So he'll he'll take me to shows when, you know, from the beginning when there were, you know, he he was working for like a PA hire company. So so he'll show me how to wire everything and how to use stuff and how to kind of use compressors and EQs and kind of mic placement. And, and I, I learned a lot from him. He's doing really well these days. He's a live sound engineer and he's, he's doing great in Latin America, like traveling all over the world with like really big Latin American artists that I do not know, but I know he's doing great. Um, <laughs> so I, so I learned a lot from him and then, and then I just kind of, I always really liked it. Um, because I've always been kind of quite nerdy, and, you know, I like electronics and stuff. So uh, I just kind of kept going. And then when I found out about the, um, the degree in SAE London, then I just went, actually, well, wow, this, is, this is what I want to do. So I did that.
1: So I think that a lot of people wonder whether or not they should get a degree in recording. And I, fig- I don't know, what year did you go to SAE? I started in 2000. Okay, so what they would have been teaching then is vastly different than what they would teach now, I would think. Yeah. Um, uh, it sounds to me like you going there was very worth it. Do you think uh, for someone nowadays who wants to get good at this stuff that they should go to school, or do you think um, it's easier without school these days? Do you, or do you have no opinion?
2: No, I think you know, like I, I, um, I do some guest lectures in SAE sometimes, and haven't done one in a while. And and um, I think I think it's it depends on how you take it for me it was a good experience because um i learned a lot of the basics that i would have i wouldn't have really just sat there myself like learning about electronics and how eqs actually work and compressors how they actually work and what they actually do so i think the theory was pretty good it was good to learn about acoustics as well about how to how to use tape machines which i think they don't do anymore um so, the, so some of the basic knowledge was great. Um, then there were these modules on like, you know, like music industry and like these assignments where you just kind of have to write really long essays. And and I didn't like that. But um, but I had access to recording studios 24 hours a day. So I just, I just rinsed the hell out of it. And I was just there every night recording stuff. And then I'll sleep a couple of hours in the couch. And then I'll go to my lecture. Then I'll go home, sleep a couple of hours, and then come back at night and do it all over again.
1: So I got a lot of experience from that. And, you know, I've always told people, if you're going to go to school, um, most people who go to school are going to fail because they don't take advantage of what they have there. If you actually go to school and you devote yourself to getting every single ounce of value you can out of it, like every single last bit, and you use as much of that free studio time as you can, and you get as much as you can individually from all the teachers, and you really, really do it. Then I don't see how it can be a bad thing. To no,
2: go. I think it's. I, I mean, unless unless you, and it's funny, man. Like the the two other guys from my class that were that were there all the time, they're they're both doing pretty well too. You know, like one of them became like a, he works in a. Um, in broadcasting, and he he he's, he's he's got like a really really good job. Um, the other guy wrote um, he wrote he published a book on mixing. Um, he's more of an acad- academic kind of guy, but he 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 did well. And you know, and th- those guys were there all the time. But the other guys that were there just for the lectures and for a couple of hours of studio time, just so they could pass their practical assignments. I'm pretty sure they none of them work in the music industry.
1: Of course not. I mean, you have to be obsessed with this stuff. Yeah, uh, you don't have to be obsessed your whole life, but I do believe that there's a certain amount of time, like five or ten years, for most people. You know, sometimes you get a genius where it only takes three mm. or something, but you know, you need a good five or ten years where you're just obsessed and you're in there all the time, whether you're in school or learning on your own. Or an intern somewhere or whatever. Mm. You just need to you need to put in that kind of time and really not do anything else. Yeah, um, I mean and, and it's a lot easier when you're young.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, and, and it's such a it's such a fascinating subject that covers so many other things. Like so why wouldn't you? You know, like I that's another thing I love about my job, you know, I'm a, I'm a businessman, I'm a psychologist. I'm an electrician, uh, I'm a cleaner, I'm a, I don't know, I'm the coffee boy. You know, like there's so many jobs involved into into what, you know, like record production involves, you know, and it's it's just, it just never ends. So I think it's such a fascinating subject like, overall, like a thing to do. But I think you really have to love it and, and you really have to want it because it's very competitive, it's very clicky. It's hard to make a name for yourself. So you just, yeah, I think if you really want to succeed in this kind of stuff, you either get really, really lucky or you're just going to have to work really, really hard. Or
1: both. Or both,
2: yeah. Work really, (laughs) really hard.
1: Work really, really hard and then get lucky and then work even harder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Um, I agree. Yeah, I don't know a single person who has a real career who doesn't work their asses off. Mm. Even the dudes who get lucky still work their asses off, I think. Um, out of all those different jobs you listed, um, are there any that you prefer over the others? Uh, no, I really, I really like, I really
2: like all of it. There's, I think the one thing. So you're, you're
1: just in love with the whole thing.
2: I I just love everything. I mean, the, the, the bits I kind of don't like, it's, um, it's, it's the really, the really boring stuff. Like, you know, when I have to deal with my accountant or when I have to deal with the lawyer, or you know stuff, like, oh, yeah, stuff like that, just uh, I don't like that, obviously, but who does? <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> I don't think anybody,
2: yeah, um and the the other thing that's you know over the years now uh, is getting a little bit tedious is is tracking. Um, I love you know i'll 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 be the guy that's gonna spend three days getting a drum sound because I don't like using drum samples. Because uh, I like to create something kind of different every time and unique. Um, I love doing that, but the whole process of just sitting there and and record and, okay, stop, do it again and do it again. You know, like, especially guitars, you know, like you have to, if I'm recording guitars and I have the guitarist in the control room. So I have to monitor fairly loud so they can hear themselves. Yes. <laughs> like I, I do find, that's the only thing that I find quite tiring, but luckily at the moment I have I have a really good assistant that I really trust. I mean I obviously listen back to all the takes. Um um but uh yeah I got this this guy that's really good at the moment who's, who's really good with guitar stuff in particular. So I can just fully trust him on on stuff and then I just listen back when they're a a song and I just go like, oh maybe this bit could be better. Maybe this is a bit sloppy or maybe the tuning's a bit weird here and and then we rectify those bits, and, and that's cool. But yeah, it's nice to have a, li- a little bit of help, you know, especially after... I mean, I, I've, I've been doing it for a long time, so it's nice I to mean, have that. I mean,
1: most guys, most guys end up getting tracking engineers um, or some sort of assistant to do the stuff they don't want to do anymore. And I think that it's perfectly natural. And I mean, I feel that way about editing um, I mean, I know some guys who love doing it. Mm. I wouldn't say that I love doing that sort of stuff, but I did it enough to where once I finally found someone that I trusted to do it for me, mm. um, I was perfectly happy to to let that go, um, make a little less money, and just make sure that someone who actually cared... Like, See, here's the thing. Uh, if you're not really into something... Mm. Uh, to where like it doesn't excite you, like uh, it's better to let someone else do it who does really love it because the amount of attention you need to put into it to get it, you know, perfect or like up to standard. Uh, obviously, nothing's ever perfect, but I mean, up to standard, you need to really, really be obsessed with it to be good and en- to get it good enough. And uh, so the guy who ended up editing for me. Mm. A dude named John Douglas who really enjoys doing that stuff, so of course, he's gonna do a way better job than I ever could. Um, because he's into it, he's like zen with it, all right. Um, so I can so I kind of, you know, I was never zen with it, and I feel like some guys are that way with tracking too, like, uh, they're 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 better for giving the big picture, mm. um. And you save your ears too, right? Yeah. If you don't track all the guitars, you save your ears so that you can make better decisions later.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I also have the same thing with editing. You know, it's one of those things where uh, I feel like I've done it to death. Um, so I, I've got i got Chris at the studio doing it for me, and he's he's really good. And you know, he 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 likes doing it. So and he does it well. Um, and, and if he doesn't, I have this joke with him all the time that I tell him he's
1: fired. But he gets fired
2: like five times a day <laughs> as a joke.
1: <laughs> <laughs> one time, it i be real, does he get scared every time? No, he knows he's a joke. He's a great guy.
2: <laughs> we have a really good time at work every day. So.
1: so how did you go about getting your studio started? I can imagine that um, it wasn't easy.
2: No, it wasn't, especially in this country, you know. Um, I mean, this is probably like one of the you know, the home of like the the birthplace of the best studios and probably the best producers, you know.
1: Um so it, and some of the best musicians yeah, too. Yeah,
2: exactly. So it was it, it was very tough. I mean, I've been I was I finished uni in two thousand and three and you know, it was, that was that was a long time ago now. So it's been a it's been a very slow process where I um I got a couple of jobs from university when I was in university because I was doing so well. They actually put me forward for a couple of jobs. Um, one was in a small recording studio that used to record like lots of demos for bands, like at the weekends and, you know, just kind of like a, like a demo kind of studio, but it was pretty good.
1: Um, and I learned a lot there. Um, and and then I so o- did they do they normally give people did they normally help students get jobs or was it just because you were the student that was always there and doing the best or one of the best students
2: well I was but also like back then you know i I think s a e was a lot smaller and well I'm sure actually I've been to the new premises and it's just insanely big now um but I think it, yeah I think there was um they they do get emails saying "Oh we need you know we need someone to to help out they they do get emails here in the u k in London like you know it's a big city and they're getting oh we need someone to do some editing or we need someone to to do some running or so do some you know you get all sorts of stuff um so they they put me forward for a couple of jobs and I got both jobs so my last year at the uni was pretty hard because I was doing my dissertation and stuff but I was also working um but, you know, I was, I, was, I was very young, so I had all the energy, so I just did it. And I managed to keep those jobs. And the post-production job was good because it paid well, although I didn't like it that much. But, uh, but my bosses were amazing. They were really, really nice, and I really like working for them. And we're still friends, and we keep in touch. Uh, so that helped me fund my equipment, really, uh, slowly, and then in the in the music studio in the recording studio i that was a good way to meet bands and because they had rehearsal studios too so so I met a band there that I really liked, and then we recorded an album that I did for free and like recorded it there in like downtime and I mixed it at home in a in a power Mac that I had with a pair of Yamaha multimedia speakers. And that's all I had, my Pro Tools 002, my Digi- Digi Design 002 interface, and that's
1: all I had. I mean, and you did it for free. I, I think it's great to point out that even after all the studying you did and the fact that you were already getting paid um, at the post house, you were still willing to do a record for free just to be able to start doing records. Um, I think most people should do that.
2: Well, it was
0: it,
1: it
2: was a way for it was it was a, a bit of an in into in, yeah. into what I wanted to do. So there was this guy, this guy who used to work in the in the studio, whose name is Daniel O'Sullivan. Uh, he's a very very talented musician. Um, he's he he still plays in the Norwegian band called Olva. I don't know if you've heard of them.
1: Yes, definitely.
2: So he plays with them now, and we had a band together as well called called Mothlight. But, you know, bef- way before that, we just met there in the studio. He was just taking care of the rehearsal bands. I was doing, you know, freelancing in the recording studio, recording bands. And then um, and then he played me some of his old band um, called uh, Miasma and the Carousel of Headless Horses. And I just absolutely loved it. It was like, it sounded... Wait, wait,
1: wait. What's that name again? <laughs> it's pretty... <laughs> that, that, that name's crazy. Yeah, it's
2: Miasma and the Carousel of Headless Horses. Okay. Yeah, and that was that actually got released on Rise Above Records which is Lee Dorian's record label here, so that mm-hmm. was kind of like my first proper release and we spent months working on it on and off because it was a really ambitious project for for all of us you know, I had lots of keyboards and lots of guitars, it's like this experimental kind of King Crimson-y kind of vibe you know, like uh, very proggy very psychedelic, but very musical with like lots of kind of um classical music classical music influences and like gypsy music influences and it, it's it's a mm-hmm. great record actually I still love it um but that was a really good way for me to to you know like okay like the record's out and 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 people like it and you know and then then you know like that that kind of scene you start getting more people like hey can you can you master my album or can you mix my album or can you record my album you know all this kind of stuff and then Kind of went from there, really.
1: And just give us an idea of what year we're talking about that this was released.
2: I think it came out a bit late, but I think it came out maybe around 2005,
1: and five, six. Okay, so you got out of school in 2003. Yeah. And then it still took another two or three years until you n- nailed a release yeah. that came out. Okay. Okay. I just wanted people to get some sense that it's not like you got out of school and then within three or four months you were doing label releases of nah. bands you like. It took It took three years after all the work you did in school. I'm just saying that for people who are listening, who I know a lot of our listeners sometimes move to L.A., looking for internships and get discouraged when after six months they're not making that much money or, you know, a lot of, after a year of doing lower-level stuff, sometimes people get discouraged, things like that. And it's, you just got to understand that everything good takes time. And uh, building a recording career is something that, even after you know some stuff and you're not a total novice, still it still takes years yeah. until... You get get an opportunity and just then people start to know who you are little by little and you just have to keep on working and working.
2: Yeah, and get better and better. And you know, I, I did a lot of stuff really cheap at the you know, when I was studying out, like so that record was for free. I'm sure I did some other jobs for free, that I can't remember. And a lot of the stuff, you know, if if I was if I was really keen on the band, if that was something that, that I feel okay, I'm into this and I think I can make it sound good, and and I'm really gonna be into it when I'm doing it, so I'm gonna do my best. Um, so I'll do it cheaper because I just want to do it and I just want to get my name out. And and uh, you know, but in, in the same way, like I kept my my post production job because I was paying the bills. So so I was literally working seven days a week for on from eight thirty in the morning. Till 6.30 Monday to Friday in the post-production studio and then I'll go home and work on my own projects until about midnight and then go to bed and then on the weekend I'll go to the recording studio the music studio and record bands there like that did so many I still do so many seven day weeks you know it's just
1: you just have to work hard really uh, I don't know a single person who works hard and does well at this who doesn't do seven day weeks mm-hmm. um but do you do you ever insist on having any time off or you're totally fine to do no days off if you don't need to?
2: No anymore, no. I, I I need I like having I tell bands, um, ideally weekends off. Um if not possible then Sunday off. Or or Saturday. I I prefer Sunday off. I don't know why. But um but you know, sometimes it's not possible like um I went to Iceland last year to record the band called Solstafir in Sundlag um, in, Sundla- oh, yeah. in Studios, which is the, the Sigur Ross uh, studio, which is an amazing studio, it's a beautiful place and um, an amazing equipment. And I the guy who runs it, Biggie, he's, he's really, really nice to work with. Uh, but the deal with that album was that um, they just didn't have time to, to stop. So we just work twenty eight days straight every day um and I haven't done that in a while to be honest you know i sometimes I just take like you know i have like two or three days off in in the month or something, but I haven't done like a whole month like on all the time, and that was really hard i think it's not it's not very good for your for your
1: mental for your, health
2: <laughs> yeah, it's yeah like you know i was i was I was going to say quality of work, but the quality of work was there because when I was at this, I mean, I had a couple of days where where I just, you know, I just, I was just falling asleep all the time. A couple of days just out of tiredness. No one insults after drinks. Um, so I wasn't even drinking either myself. Um, there were no like, you know, like, let's go to the, to the bar after, after the student. There was none of that. Um. But this, there were a couple of days in the last kind of two weeks that I was just falling asleep all the time because I was just so tired um I think it's good to have breaks uh, I think it's good to have days off and most importantly these days like in the last in the last few years actually I keep my sessions really short. I don't do the how short I work from eleven till seven
1: you know uh when I worked with Colin Richardson mm. he when he mixed my band's record in like two thousand six, he only worked from ten till six. He, he, you know, at six o'clock we were done. That was it. It was not going later. And he did a phenomenal job. So I, I think that also one of my business partners, uh, Joel Wanasek, he also works specific hours from like nine till three or something in the studio. Right. Um. And. He doesn't deviate, and he gets more work done than most people I know put exactly. together. Exactly,
2: and that's what works for me as well in my bands. You know, I find that we, um, if we're, you know, the 12, 15-hour days, um, I, I they become 12, 15-hour days because the next day you have to re-record all the last stuff you did in the last three, four hours or five hours. Yes. So, and then everyone gets more... Gets more pressure, um ever you know, like attention spans drop, people get tired, people get moody, you know. Um I I I I swear to God, like especially since I moved to the countryside a year and a half ago, I've been I mean, I'm not super strict that it's eleven till seven, you know. If like say if we have a if there's a night, everyone's having a drink, we're start at twelve and then we work until eight or even nine if we're on a roll, you know, it's fine. I'm cool with that. Uh only if I feel like everything is everyone's on a like in a in a good space and, and performing well and stuff because I'm not a pro to chop it all up and make it perfect guy. I like I like recording performances. So I need I need my bands to be to be happy and feeling well and 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 just being inspired. And if you work someone for fifteen hours a day, they're not gonna be inspired. I mean like when's the last time uh when's the last time you played your <laughs> instrument fifteen hours a day? Never. Maybe on the last recording session at one point, but musicians don't play fifteen hours a day. No one does. Or maybe very few of them do, but
1: maybe Steve Vai when he was seventeen. Exactly. Yeah, something. something like
2: that. So I think yeah. when you're trying to get, you know, like say like um like a like a heavy hitting rock drummer or a metal drummer, and you're trying to get eight, nine hours out of it, it's lunacy. It's just it's just they're just you just hear it in the performance I'm not going to go and sound replace all the drums because I don't like that yeah. and I just hear it in me it's like dude like you, you're sounding a bit more sloppy um, you just don't hear the energy and the, like, it feels a bit lifeless so, so let's stop oh no no but I'm really worried about time and blah blah trust me let's go home have a good night's sleep let's wake up tomorrow I promise you'll be fine and, it, and it's always worked it's always worked. doing the short days really works for me and for for the last projects I've been doing, like for the last
1: three years. You know it's uh, I've also started doing over the years uh, shorter and shorter sessions for those reasons as well. And I also encountered that situation with drummers where you start to notice that they're tired, you can hear it. Um, and you you say we should stop, and they just want to keep yeah. going because they feel guilt, they feel guilty, um, and they don't want to slow the record down. But seriously, without fail, we always end up redoing the stuff from when the dude was tired, and usually something that would take three hours tired, usually we get done in like 20 minutes yeah, when they're feeling exactly great.
2: exactly that. Exactly that.
1: That's exactly my point. And it's better too.
2: Yeah, like you've got the energy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the energy is everything and I, I think that a lot of beginning producers don't take into account how much the vibe of the people hanging out makes a difference in how the record will actually sound and how Keeping the musicians feeling good and healthy and happy is a big part of it because, it's a, yeah, I agree. Have you ever seen uh, the documentary about Mike Tyson, the boxer, called Tyson? Um, no, well, it's uh, it's pretty phenomenal, it's like an autobiography, but he was talking about when he was like number one in the world and just beating the shit out of everybody and always winning, uh, that it was all just a labor of love. And he was loving every moment of it and was just so happy while he was doing it. And it was kind of that that love and joy for it, which allowed him to be that incredible of a fighter, which is crazy yeah. to say because he's feeling that way about... Yeah, about... Yeah, because he's pummeling yeah. people. But... But it's a similar sort of thing that if people are feeling really good and they're full of energy and they're not tired and you know um, they're on a good roll, you're just going to get better performances, better vibe, better everything.
2: Yep, that's the that's definitely the way I, I roll these days. Uh, it just it just I don't know. I, I I remember you know sessions that I used to do where, where we'd be in the studio like. Literally till like four or five in the morning, and then go set again at ten, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's just uh, fuck that. It's just, uh, it's just, uh, I just couldn't do it anymore. To be honest, it's, I, I mean, it's not like because because I want to go home and and have a normal life. Because if you're doing this kind of job, you can't have
1: a normal life. I find um,
2: it's because I have to come home and do a lot of other work.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I was thinking about. Uh, the not having a normal life thing, it, and I think that that's very, very true. And lots of times, when I've when I've uh, made sessions shorter, I've had to like get people to understand that it has nothing to do with wanting to go out or like not working or anything like that. It has more to do with my ears, yeah, of course, their ears and ability. Because there comes a point after x amount of hours where you just don't hear very well anymore Mm -hmm. and if you keep pushing it then the next day you're going to start from a worse position with your ears and you're going to last even less time Mm -hmm. and if you push that then you know within two weeks or three weeks sometimes your hearing is not as good as it was at the beginning of the project Mm -hmm. um your ears are worn out worn down and that makes it harder to pay attention and harder to, you know, be in a good mood and it adds a lot of stress to the situation, in my opinion. So I think that that's another reason to work less hours is to keep your ears feeling good.
2: Yeah, and also I think also, uh, you know, everyone knows that, okay, we're we're, we're working seven, eight hours with a lunch break in the middle, so in those seven, eight hours everyone's just going to put all their energy into those hours instead of like Oh my God, we're gonna be in the studio again, fifteen hours, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. and people, yeah, it's just, I don't know, I, it's been, it's been working out really well for me to, uh, to do that, actually.
1: So, I want to switch topics and talk about your studio. Some, um, it's called Oregon Studios, mm-hmm. and I was watching some videos about it, and man, your place is really beautiful. I love the, uh, I love the brick. I love the hard surfaces that you've got there. And you've got a ton of guitar amps. And uh, I watched an interview of yours with Russ Russell, who has been on the podcast. Oh, cool. He also talked about, uh, yeah, he's a great dude. And you talked about having around 100 guitar pedals. So are you are you one of those guitar amp pedal dudes that just likes to collect a bunch of Guitar gear.
2: I like to con- to collect a lot of gear in general. Actually, um, I-, I have a thing for guitar amps. I don't know why, because I can't play guitar, but I'm, I think I'm a frustrated guitarist. And you're a drummer, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. And actually, like in the last the last couple of years, I decided actually I need to buy more drums because like I got way more guitar stuff than drum stuff, <laughs> so. So now I've been. <laughs> now I have five drum kits and and thirteen snare drums, which is pretty cool, and a lot of cymbals.
1: That's um, a pretty good selection, right there.
2: Yeah, I got you know vintage stuff. I got modern stuff, maple stuff, birch stuff, all the classic stuff. You know, it's, it's nice to because I'm really, uh, you know, I, I've been spending kind of less money on on recording equipment and more money on musical instruments because uh, I just like kind of.
1: That's so smart,
2: actually I think it makes sense like um you know because i'm not i'm not a i'm not really like um you know one of these kind of um like plug in and samples kind of you know like guitar emulators and sam- drum samples kind of guy, and you know and i don't only work with metal i I work with lots of different stuff, so you know i get a I get a band that wants to sound like a like a retro rock band and it's like well okay i've got a I've got a Marshall Plexi. i got um I got a vintage Marshall cab. Um, I've got a late sixties um, drum kit that sounds beautiful. Uh, I got vintage Siljins, you know, and I got a bunch of mid- vintage mics and stuff. So it's that's how you get the sounds. So obviously, it depends on the songs as well. But um,
1: well, I find I find, and I've done shootouts with this. Uh, with uh, this dude Matt Brown, who uh, was an incredible drum tech engineer, we have a drum course coming out, a production course, and cool. Uh, we uh we would do these shootouts where we try to see how much of the sound is, how much of the recording chain contributes what to the sound. And man, um, when you really break it down, the single most important thing, besides the player. You know, because that's the most important thing. Yeah, of course. Is their, it's like their instrument. Yeah, um, that's it. And the player and the instrument give a matter a hell of a lot more than which preamp you're using.
2: Yeah, um, 100%. Micro,
1: microphone, microphone also matters a lot. Yeah. But uh, if you had to choose, if you had to say, I'm going to invest my money in things that are going to make an immediate difference in the sounds I'm getting and you already have decent preamps meaning not total shit yeah um if you had to choose between getting a bunch of the highest end preamps possible or a bunch of really really great instruments i'd go with a lot of really great instruments
2: me too yeah 100% i mean like to be honest with you like i i don't care what people say i've got 1073s uh NIF 1073s I've got um APIs, 512Cs, and I got the the preamps for my SSL, which are great. But the you know it's not like a difference, like you go like, wow my god, this sounds completely different to the other. I mean like you you hear more of a difference say like between the the SSL pre's and the and the APIs and the leaves. Then that there is there is something there for sure, but I think
1: you know it's not the same as a Strat versus a Les Paul, though. Uh,
2: I no, <laughs> I don't think it's that far. I, I don't think it's even that far. I think no. I I don't know. Like like people can think whatever they want to think about me, but um, I just I think a lot of it is just. I mean, they do. I, I have tracked in like vintage Neves, the classic, the you know the Dave Grohl Neve, you know one of those I've recorded on. I've recorded on. MCIs on NIF VRs and um APIs, Amex, uh, you know, like when I think where you're at that level, they they do like those pre sound really good, and I don't think you need to like go crazy like buying you know like some of these super boutique, you know, two grand preamps, you know, because I, I don't know, <laughs> like I just don't hear. I think once, there, once once they hit a level once you hit a level with preamps you know like I think you can do most jobs with them.
1: I completely agree. I mean look if you already have the best musicians in the world w- playing with a, on the top instruments and you have money to spend that's a lot of sure, the job. then okay, sure. I mean you may as well get better and better preamps sure but if you but if you don't like if you're recording bands for instance who don't have great instruments. Then you'll get a better you'll get better results if you get if you get better instruments and make them play those instead of their crappy instruments.
2: Yeah, I mean that's one of the reasons why I started picking up instruments because I would get bands coming in with like really kind of bad stuff. Uh, say, well, or not even bad stuff, but like the wrong stuff. You know, I, I would get a band saying like, "Oh, you know, we want the," I mean, let's let's talk about fifteen years ago. We want to sound like Machine Head. Burn my eyes, guitar tone, and and it's like, dude, you have um, a Marshall plexi. So you're not gonna, you're not gonna get that sound out of that. You need like a like a proper <laughs> high gain amp, or or they'll have you know like just some practice combo amp or a line six amp. Oh yeah, but you know it's got the metal setting on it, and it's like, yeah, dude, trust me, it's just not gonna sound like that. Um, so I think that's why I. Um, I think that's why I got so much backline these days because especially guitar amps. I just love being able to just go like, "Hey, I think I think this part of the song is it's it's a uh, it's Fender Twin with a with a Strat. Let's just do that." And boom, I've got it. So, I like
1: being able to do that. You know, also, man, like you said, not always the wrong, I mean not always bad instruments, but even with the touring guys, sometimes they get good instruments that are just worn to shit because they tour with them. Yeah. like Right? Like, y- y- these drummers who are in bigger bands, yeah, they might have a killer drum set, but if it's spent any time touring, you can't trust it in the studio because um, all the hardware is going to be totally whacked out.
2: Yeah, it's going to be a nightmare. We, yeah. we, we were just talking about that at, um, at the Paradise Lost uh, launch in Germany on the 1st of September where they got a higher kid from Pearl um because uh Valtteri, the drummer in Paradise Lost indoors by Pearl And the kid they sent the hardware was so mashed up you know it was just like you know the he was really nervous that the that the symbol stuff were going to fall uh, fall off in the middle of the show and stuff <laughs> and obviously okay. i mean let alone, I, I can't even begin to imagine the state of the bearing edges of, of those drums. You know, I'm sure they're like pitted to hell.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
2: And then you know, tuning becomes a bit more
1: complicated that way, <laughs> to say the least. Uh huh. So, um, do you have any uh, any outboard gear that you use that you find that you always use, like go to stuff for vocals or? Go to stuff on drums, or you seriously starting from scratch every time?
2: Um, no, I I tend to. I have preamps that I like using for certain things, especially on drums. So, like for example, all my drum spots will be on on APIs because I can drive them a bit, and I, that's you know that's one difference you get with some preamps that you can actually drive them, uh, and you can do that with the ten seventy threes as well. So I do use them for that and then I on when they're coming on the input of the desk I trim the the level a bit so so I get a bit of kind of tiny bit of kind of drive on the drums um, and then all the symbol stuff like all the room mics and all the overheads and all that stuff I use the the sSL preamps because they're they're just kind of very clean mm-hmm. um but that's about it really I actually I don't really use EQ or compression when recording I just I just I just make drummers really bored because I just sit there tuning and tuning and changing skins and I you know changing drums like oh, I'm not feeling this snare drum I'm not feeling the skins on the toms let's get out <laughs> he sounds like me yeah I mean it's, I think you know it's, it's the I think it's the way to do it you know you obviously I do a lot of pre-production with the bands like with the especially with the big projects and and you know, we have this disgust in depth before they go in the studio. So I'll have three different sets of of skins and because say like, oh I don't know the kit, so I don't know what to use with it. So so let's get this, let's get those, and let's get a set of those as well. And then try it out and then Yeah, and then just move mics and I mean like I've I've heard I've heard drums that sound great with nothing on them, you know, like a long time ago and I was just like, Wow, I can't can't believe how good that sounds with no EQ and no compression, and and then I just well, like if someone else can do it, then I can do it. So I just worked hard on it, and that's kind of what I do. I just spend a lot of time on drum tuning and stuff.
1: Man, and I gotta say too that you know, in addition to the instrument and the player being uh, most important, um, the uh, with a drum. The way that you tune it, it makes a lot more of a difference than what gear you're running it through.
2: Oh, yeah, massively.
1: Yeah, you should massively. definitely take the time to work on that.
2: Mm. Yeah, and that's and stuff. That's you know, that's something that um, that's a bit like making records. It takes a long time to understand how to tune drums.
1: It, so with tuning drums, is it something that, Uh, you learned to do because you're a drummer or did you learn to do it for the studio and I'm asking because a lot of drummers I know don't know how to tune drums
2: yeah that's I mean same here um um, it was a bit of both um I actually did my dissertation for in uni it was about um it was kind of about drum tuning and drum construction um so so I, I, I really got really nerdy about it and tried lots of different things and read a lot of books about it, watched a lot of videos on YouTube and and to be fair, there's no right way of doing it. I still kind of I kind of have a bit of a method, but it doesn't always work. You just have to I think like drums are really they're really temperamental, unique things sometimes. It doesn't always go like, Oh, this is what I do. So you, you need to really feel out the drum. You have to feel it out uh, that's the way I tune.
1: What is your method if you don't mind going into it a little bit?
2: sure um <clears throat> I mean for like i think I think toms for example, I hate single like uh thin single ply skins on the bottom like on the resonators i I really like um kind of thicker stuff like like coated emperors interesting yeah, because you get a deeper tone and you don't get all that whew. Sound You know, that can be, sometimes it can take so long to, to tune resonators. Like it could, I mean, I just prefer the tone I get with with those these days. Or even even uh, anything coated underneath, I, f- I find it a bit, sounds kind of better.
1: And on the back. Interesting, because a lot of the modern metal guys use uh, Ambassadors as their bottom head on Tom, which is pretty thin.
2: Yeah, but you know, like I don't. does work for I don't you. like drums that go boop boop
1: boop boop. Yeah, I
2: like drums that go like brup, 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 like massive. You know, so. Uh huh. Um, I always record big drums as well. At the time, I, I I kind of make drummers play like bigger sizes than they're normally used to. I just like kind of big sounds of big drums. Great. Um, but uh, with batter heads on the toms, um. One thing I think is really important that maybe a lot of people overlook is the way you sit the the skin on the drum. like so so you take the old skin off, I always clean the the bearing edges, uh, give it a good clean, make sure there's no dust or no nothing on there. Then I put the skin and then I put the the hoop back on, and then you have to you have to like feel where the the skin is kind of sitting like in the right place because I find if you don't if you don't get that right then you're gonna start getting wrinkles and I think I think that gets overlooked a little bit however with the Evans level 360 thing it's a lot easier um but
1: I still prefer Remo skins for some stuff so man I I'm a Remo guy
2: the Evans are they I just wish Remo kind of like they came up with more interesting new products because I think they're Evans are doing a lot of new stuff all the time and Remo's just kind of stuck in their ways but Fair enough. But they're they're great. And you know like I like those black chrome skins uh that Evans does for some stuff. They just sound really deep and for some stuff they just work really good. Um like Remo, there's no equivalent of Remo on that. So but, uh yeah, Tom's like I don't know, just 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 um sit the skin right, and then I just do just I just put them like finger tight all around, and then I start doing you know that crisscross kind of pattern, uh-huh.
1: um,
2: I tend to go three full turns on each rod, like one, two, three, one two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, uh, which is a bit harsh, but uh. It works for me, and then I, and then the rest I really do by feel and just kind of listening to to the to the tuning around the, the tension rods.
1: And are you aiming for a specific pitch, or are you just aiming for the drum for where the drum sounds best with for itself?
2: Yeah, I never I never do the pitch thing. I've never done it. Um, I mean, no, I I have had tried for snares, but not for for toms. Um, I think it's just finding the sweet spot of the, of the drum is always my, Uh and, and the sweet spot can change depending on what kind of skins you're using too, obviously. So I just, I just spent a lot of time getting, I mean, I think the Paradise Lost guys were getting a bit like, honestly, like what's, what's going on? Like, why, like, why are we not recording drums yet? Because drums are not sounding
1: great yet. So we're going to have to wait. How long did it take you to get the drum sounds on it? about 3 days. That's not a long time. That's a good amount of time. I I hear you though. Um I I like to take about 3 days as well. Mm. Um and I definitely have had bands start to get weird yeah. after about middle of the second day. But I just find that it takes some I mean, I've got I've had to move faster and definitely done stuff in one day, you know, when you have no choice. Yeah, yeah, of course me but, too. Yeah, but there's something that just happens by the end of the third day because you've been, you know, been tweaking stuff and your ears don't last very long when you're getting drums because of what you're listening to all day. It's just cymbals Mm -hmm. getting hit or drums getting hit. Um, So you need to, you do need to rest a lot on drum tone days. And I just find that, uh, You've had enough time to tweak it to where by the third day it should really be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good amount of time. The thing I find, you know how you were talking about redoing recordings? Because you were tired. I find that sometimes on albums where I got the drum tone in like one day and then had to start recording on day two. I find that by day three, I've improved the drum sound anyways because I would still have to keep tweaking it a little bit Mm. and the drummer's playing better because he's more warmed up and comfortable and uh, we end up redoing this stuff from day one anyways
2: yeah true that does happen yeah
1: So I say take the time to get it right and then record
2: Yeah, and then another thing I spend a lot of time on is room mics because I love my room mics Um, you've
1: got a very very cool facility to use room mics in
2: yeah and, you know, coming back to, to where we were talking earlier about, um, like, buying instruments, I think, you know, like, now, like after, after I had, like, all, you know, like, the equipment I've had, like, a couple of years ago, and, and I'm like, actually, what I, what I really need now, what I really put my money on now, it's a really nice room. And I think that's, that's a really good place to put money instead of preamps, for example, I completely agree. Like a good sounding room is going to make a massive difference in, in your work, like huge. Like if you're recording, if you're recording drums in a little tiny little box that is full of foam and absorbent materials. And when you get a big room, you go like, wow, it's just it's just something else.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. That's the stuff people should spend their money on, in my opinion. Yeah, I think sure. people
2: read too many ads and, you know, they go on gear slots and they just go, oh, like, I need to buy this, I need to buy that. But obviously, gear slots is run by salesmen. <laughs> a lot of people in there are salesmen.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's um, true.
2: Um, it's not run by salesmen, actually. I know the people who run it, but there are a lot of salesmen in there. And... So you know you kind of get sucked in I need to buy this, I need to buy that, I need to buy that, and you know what like a perfect example of that was about ten twelve years ago, I got in my head that I needed to buy a manly massive passive and um and I bought one. I saved enough money, and I took a bit of a loan to buy one because I was convinced that everything that would pass through that was just gonna sound amazing <laughs> and and um. And when I got it, I was a bit disappointed actually because I was like, Oh well yeah, it's it sounds really nice, but it still just sounds like an EQ. <laughs> it's not like Yeah it it made the it made everything sound like three D and amazing. No. Like that what makes three D and amazing is just good instruments, good musicians, good room, good mics.
1: And and someone that knows how to mix well. Exactly, yeah. And record well. Yeah, yeah. that was my first impression, too, when I first started using high-end gear, was this isn't really... I mean, it's certainly not hurting anything, but, you know, a shitty guitar tone going through a 1073 is still a shitty guitar tone.
2: Oh, yeah, exactly.
1: It's just going through a nice preamp, so you hear a very detailed shitty guitar tone. Like, yeah. that's basically what it is. If you put a really bad singer through a $30,000 microphone, all you're going to hear is a really detailed bad singer. Yeah. You're going to hear everything that's bad about the singer. Yeah, exactly. But it's not going to make them a good singer. Like, they're not, it's not going to make someone that has a bad tone suddenly have a good tone. Mm, I agree. But yeah. I think that that's where people get it wrong from reading online on places like Gear Sluts, they think that the gear is going to cause some fundamental change to the material that they're working on. And when in reality, the thing that will cause the most fundamental change is uh, your brain and the instruments and the people involved.
2: Yeah. I mean, like for me, it was, it was like um, the first experience I had with that was when I, when, I, when I was the early days of working in that little recording studio in London and we had a house drum kit we had a very small uh, like drum room there. And I always thought like, as a drummer, like, oh my God, these drums just sound, they're just not very good drums. They were, it was, it was like a premier middle-of-the-range kit. And, and then one day, um, a band came in with a proper session drummer, and I could not believe they were the same drums. <laughs> I was just like, 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 literally like, wow, this, I mean, I think he had brought his own snare. But just the way the kick and the tom sounded, the way he tuned it and stuff was like, wow, it's just, I can't believe it's the same kick.
1: Yeah, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, I've had sessions where, just because of a weird scheduling thing, uh, the same two different bands had to use the same drum set with the same microphone setup, mm-hmm. different cymbals, but. Uh, it just—it was a scheduling thing. It was a, a nightmare that came true scheduling-wise, and uh, we had no choice basically. Um, so, because I would never suggest doing that, um, sure, uh, unless you have no choice. So we had no choice. So exact same setup, same microphones. Nothing got moved around. Sounded completely different. Yeah, it's the, insane. Yeah, one drummer w- was kind of a pussy with how he hit. The other drummer is just like one of the, uh, like a badass new metal drummer. Meaning, hit really, really hard. Like, um, maybe not the fastest, but like just hit like a fucking beast. And the difference in the way those drums sounded was just incredible. And the only thing that changed was the drummer and, of course, the sticks.
2: Yeah, what I what I find is um, as well. Like I've, I've had some drummers that that I call it the touch, basically, because I, I have had some drummers that they don't hit super hard, but they sound amazing. So, but you know, I agree. Like the the heavy hitters always sound really good, generally speaking. Um, but sometimes they, they hit the cymbals too loud as well and that starts
1: oh yeah that's really annoying
2: so it's like like I, I, I had this drummer recently where he's just I think he went to drum school and stuff and, and he he just knows how to hit the drums so well like he'll just hit the drums hard but not super hard um, it was very consistent and then his cymbals he just like you know he'll just play them like at the right volume it's just so so nice when it's like that or like The worst thing is when you get the drummers that hit the cymbals louder than the drums. That's when I start weeping. (laughs) That's just, you know, as a drummer as well, it's like, oh my God, it's just...
1: Yeah, it it hurts. It doesn't happen very
2: often these days, uh, like fortunately, um, but, uh, you know, because most of the the people I work with in the last, you know, for a while now, it's like they're all mostly professional musicians. So, but yeah, like sometimes it's just like, like you're hitting the symbols. You're 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 hitting that hi-hat like you know like like you're hitting someone that did something really <laughs> bad to you. <laughs> you need to stop doing that.
1: Yeah, the single worst or a single easiest way to ruin drum takes is to go crazy with the hi hat. Get yeah. into everything. Destroy yeah. every single mic.
2: I'll, uh, um I'll give you I'll give you a tip and for the you know, people who listen to this, um, the best hi hats I've recorded, that are actually the most beautiful sound, and the quietest hi hat I recorded, was with the Soul Sapphire album and their um, Sabian 15 inch or 16 inch, I think they were artisan cymbals. That's that those things are sounding amazing, but they're like they're like a thousand dollars for a pair of hi hats, so they're super expensive but um, I really want to get my hands on a pair of those because they're just super musical, beautiful sound, and they just didn't get on the way very much. It was kind of quiet, which is great. Sounds, Cause not,
1: sounds perfect.
2: Because I know a lot of us struggle with the hi-hat. The hi-hat's always um, one of those things that can be really annoying. I mean, like massively depends on the drummer, but hi-hats hats are just loud.
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't need to record them half the time. I, I yeah it's, it's it's
2: I don't really mic up hi hats. I would say it's like fifty-fifty depending on the band and what the drummer is doing. Because mm-hmm. I use so many room mics that uh you know, it's just gonna be there. see, it? yeah. and it's and it's probably gonna be there annoying me, in a lot of places.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can completely relate. So I have some questions here from sure. our listeners for you. Oh, cool. Um, so here's one from Eric Burt which is, when mastering a band like Sun O, how do you approach compression and limiting, since there's very little, if any, dynamics to the music? Is compression and limiting even needed? Um,
2: That's a really good question. Uh, The answer is, I do very little dynamic processing to those kind of records. Um, I mainly, uh, uh, with, uh, with Steven, um, he really likes analog stuff like I do and um, a lot of the time with that kind of stuff it's just literally like just uh, I'll just run it through some, some of my outboard to vibe it up and then I'll, I'll definitely master it to analog tape and just get a vibe of it um, because there is no need to you know, there's no transients to like you know, like get excitement in the mix and there is no you know, it's 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 um it's it's you know it's, it's like a wall of noise, so you don't need to compress. <laughs> you know, like yeah, you you don't need an SSL bus compressor type compression for that kind of stuff. So it's more about like maybe some kind of gentle, kind of nice, vibey compressor going in it, just like touching it really slowly, but mainly just like a bit of EQ and run it through through one of my tape machines, uh, through my Studer, and because I actually used. Real tape, uh, and 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 no, they don't sound anything like the plugins you can get. I got the plugins too, but they're completely different, (laughs) which is great. Um, but the plugins sound cool too, it's just a different sound. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what I do with stuff like that.
1: Thank you for thank you for going into that. I think that's cool to hear that that's how you do it because. You know, we on our program, Nail the Mix, uh, when people submit their their mixes for the competition that we do every month, one of the biggest problems that I hear uh, is people's mastering jobs. And mm. lots of times you can tell the mix was probably okay, and they just completely decimated it with the insane amount of compression and limiting. They just went nuts. Um, and just destroyed the mix completely this happens hundreds of times a month with these submissions because we often get over 600 so and wow. I, so, yeah so I, he, I'm i hearing I'm hearing this problem a lot so it's great to hear that um, doesn't need dynamics so you're not going to go crazy with it uh, no, you're just doing things to try to make it sound musical
2: uh, that's always you know like I've always I always made records as loud as they can be. The second I start hearing, like the mix is getting damaged, I stop. And then if the client complains that it's too quiet, then I'll try and boost it a little bit more. But it's not about being the loudest, especially now when, uh, you know, like all the streaming services like Spotify, they're dropping everything to like minus 4 dB or something like that. You know, they're, they're just doing minus 0.4, I think they're doing, I don't know what they're doing, but they're encoding basically. The loudest you have the master. From what I understand now, the loudest the master, the worse it's gonna sound in, through those encoders. So now, actually, like all my masters this year, they've actually gone down in volume a lot because I'm using that um, dynamiter. and um, and you know, there's there's no need anymore to be the loudest. You know, that was that was a thing of the, of the like two thousands. You know the. Oh, so it sounds louder on the radio. I mean, like, who the fuck listens to
1: radio these days? Not many people. Um, Dude, I I don't know when the last time I listened to radio was. Nor
2: do I. I don't don't have any friends that listen to radio. I mean, occasionally, like, okay, the builders, when they were building my new studio, they had the radio on, you know, but it's pop music. I think people that listen to the kind of stuff we listen to, you know, we're all kind of like record collectors and like proper music fans, and, and we like sound quality, and we don't need to butcher our records with just compressing the hell out of them. It's just no need anymore. I mean, it's not just, you know, like I, I understand from a, oh yeah, but you know, the Arch Enemy record sounds louder than my record, so I need to make it as loud. And that doesn't always work that way because sometimes the way you mix the album, the way, the way your band sounds, it just, it's never going to be that loud because if you're tuned yeah. to A, if you turn guitar, guitars to A and you're playing Doom, you probably not going to be as loud as a really melodic band that tunes in standard tuning in E because of the frequencies. I don't know. I'm just probably just thinking, looking at the moon in the countryside. I have no idea what I'm, but I guess, <laughs> you know, um, I guess that's, that would be a thing.
1: I mean, dude, I totally think that uh, the arrangement of the music um, and along with how it's mixed make a huge difference in how loud it's going to be. You need to, mix things in a way that they can be loud if that's your goal like it doesn't you know it doesn't just happen um so so i think a lot of people have a problem with it they they're not mixing specifically for that goal and then they get disappointed when they can't turn it up even if their mix was just fine
0: Mm mm-hmm
2: it does, it does happen I mean I, I, I've had records I, I do a lot of mastering like Oregon Studios is started as Oregon Mastering because I, that was a thing that I, always, I was always really fascinated about so I, I started as a mastering suite actually uh, so subsequently I've done lots of, of mastering over the years and, and I've had records that it's like it just you know like I can't get it to sound louder without sounding it making it sound bad so I just need to leave it there because I don't want it to sound bad. And I don't care if it's not as loud as Death Magnetic, because that sounds bad, in terms of mastering.
1: Yes, it does. So here's one from Sasha Riesling, which is, your studio looks incredibly beautiful. Can you talk about the acquisition of the place and the process of getting it to the state that it looks like on the website pictures? And also, what do you think people should really think about before bringing their studio or operation into a place that is not connected to their home.
2: Um, well, the first question it will be that um, the building has a lot of history. Actually, It used to be part of the code breakers here in like near near me. Is, there's a there's a city called Bletchley where the in the World War Two they um, they that's how they cracked the Enigma the Enigma machine of the of the Nazis and that building where I'm now used to be a broadcast studio where they used to record um, fake fake propaganda for, for the Nazis and broadcast it from there. Wow, uh, that's really cool. So that was pretty cool. But um, trust me, there was nothing that looked like a recording studio in there because, I mean, the, the building is about 80 years old and it was a complete mess. I mean, I had to spend a lot of money doing that place up. Um so to get it that way, I mean, I did have the wooden floor, which I was lucky. Um, I hacked off all the plaster just to leave the raw brick because it's a brick building from the outside. So I thought, well, brick sounds great. I mean, if it works for Steve Albini, it's probably going to work for me because um, he's got a lot of brick in his studio, and I love his stuff. Um, and yeah, I just you know took a lot of investment. Uh, uh, it cost me. T- it cost me twice as. M- twice more than I anticipated, so it got me in a bit of debt. But you know, luckily business is good, so I think I'll be, I'll be out of that soon. And then just, just more like uh, talking to an acoustician, a friend of mine in Colombia, used to be in a band with uh, Manuel. You know, he's like, um, he gave me a lot of advice. You know, like I want to achieve this, and he's like, try this, try that. I built a lot of like all the acoustic stuff I built myself, all the traps I built with rock wool. I made all the frames, I made all the quadratic diffusers from scratch, you know, so you can save a lot of money doing it that way, and then you can do it the way you like as well. Um, I spent a lot of time also thinking on the decoration of the place, because I'm very sensitive to to spaces and, and light, for example. If you put me in a white, bright light, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to feel good for like 10 hours a day sitting there. I'm not going to feel good. So... Um, I just wanted to make it, make it really vibey, like a really nice place with really nice views. It's in the top of a hill. So you have windows looking to the countryside, it's nothing around. Um, so when I went to see the building, I was like, yeah, this is the perfect spot and against all the odds, because it was very difficult to get all the permits from the, from the council to do it. I just kept pushing. Even even my parents were like, "Like, you need to give up with this idea. This is stupid. This is cost you like five thousand pounds, and you still haven't even got a lease on that place." And
1: I'm like, uh, "Okay, this that's really fascinating to me. What did you do to convince them? Um, because bureaucracy over there, from what I understand, is really tough to get through."
2: Yeah, I mean the um, the Brits do love paperwork. Um, and, you know, there were, there were all sort of things that, uh, oh, it's a listed building. And it's like, and then some people were saying some different department is, no, it's not listed, but it's listed, it's not listed. And then it worked out that it's not listed. A listed building means uh, it's a protected building because of its heritage. And if you get a listed building, you're into a world of chaos because the, the council's not going to let you do anything. Then there were things like, okay, I want to hack off all the plaster and... And they were like, oh, no, well, you can't do that because uh, CO2 emissions and your heating is gonna be bad and you're gonna use too much electricity, so that's bad for the environment. And honestly, there were so many things. I also have to had um, an ecological appraisal thing where they needed to check if I had bats in my, in my roof.
1: <laughs> and did you?
2: I didn't, I told, them, like, I told them like, guys, listen, it's a tin roof. Like bats don't like tin roofs, as far as I know, they like wooden roofs. Well, we don't think you have bats, but you still have to do the ecological appraisal and we still have to check. That cost me a thousand pounds for someone to come into the building, <coughs> go, in the, go in the roof and go like, yeah, you're fine. And that was a thousand pounds. Then I had um, a- They didn't like the plans at the beginning. Like, no, you need to do this. No, you can't do that. You can't do that. And then it's like a combination of like, of give and take. Like, okay, okay, I'm not going to do this, but how about I do it this way? Is it possible? And it just, it just went, it took like a, it took like a, like a year just to get it all sorted. It was, it was really difficult, but I, I am the kind of person that, that when I really want something, I just do everything to get it. So it, it was really tough, um, and you know it, it it was very expensive and and uh, but you know uh, I'm I'm super happy I'm really happy the way it looks the way it sounds the place where it is um, the accommodation I have in the studio is really nice my house is really nice in the countryside I've got a beautiful re- beautiful really really old tiny village um, ten minute walk from the house with lots of old pubs and restaurants. And it's just a really nice environment for bands to, to work at. So that's why I kept pushing with it.
1: Sounds, I mean, sounds like it was worth it.
2: Yeah, I'm really happy. Uh, it cost me a lot of stress. You I cannot begin to tell you how stressful the whole building period was. Uh, it, it was, it, it, it broke me. It really did.
1: <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, just building a studio... And not having to deal with that stuff is a pain in the ass,
2: mm.
1: and it already takes a long time. It always takes longer than you imagine, and it's always hard. But uh, to add that kind of stress on top of it seems—you must have really wanted it.
2: Yeah, I did. Um, as I tell you, you know, my my dad's a my dad's a really, really I, I really look up to him because he's a really good businessman, and. And, he, and he's kind of like me, like he's, I think I get it from him that, that you know, like, if you really want something, you keep on pushing. And even himself was telling me, like, you need to give up on this place, just go and find somewhere else. And I was like, no, I'm not doing it. This is the <laughs> place I want. And um, so, yeah, you know, and in terms of the sounds, I just, I just been experimenting as, as I've been going, you know, like I, like at the beginning I had the the, like the acoustic panels. I think I had too many on the, on the ceiling. So I started taking some out and then just hearing it in the control room, like with drums and stuff. And, and now it's just, it's uh you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, you have a studio and it's just, it just never ends. There's always something to change and something to buy and something to, to fix. And so, but it's, it's, it's pretty much there now. And, um, i mean i uh, in terms i mean it's been fully working since 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 March, but it's always i've been like fine tuning everything and it's it's getting there to like the point that I'm like hundred percent with it
1: all right last question this one's from Jesse Johnson, which is are there any particular tips you can recommend for getting drums and other stuff to cut through the ultra thick guitars with the sun os and electric wizards of the world
2: uh yeah um I actually find easier to cut through those than cut through like fifty one fifties you know because those take so much mid range and so much kind of top end, but I think um I think that the trick to I'm not really even sure how I do it like you know you have to I think like choose the right drums for the project you're working on I think is quite important if you if you have i kind of found ones that. I was recording a really heavy album that was really down-tuned and I had really big drums with really down-tuned tuning and that was difficult to make it go through. So what I did the next time is I got um, like less deep-sounding um, drums for that and you get a lot more separation that way when you're doing the kind of doomy, heavy stuff.
1: So um, in some ways it comes down to the to the arrangement and instrument choice?
2: I think so, yeah. Uh, that's, you know, it's a classic thing as well, where, uh, especially with, with melodic stuff, you know, like some of the arrangements, a lot of the time you get musicians writing a lot of arrangements in the same octave and stuff like that, and you just have to, like, move it around um, because it's just like, okay, like the the piano, the bass, the guitars are playing exactly the same notes. So, that's not gonna work.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely so to, not.
2: To cut through with the drums, uh, I don't really know. Like, um, I, I mean, I use, I use, I love room mics. I think room mics give you, you know, that kind of, the kind of top end, and that kind of. They they make the they make the drums sound so much bigger. If you have like good good room mics, it's just you know like spot mics. It's not doesn't even sound like a drum kit. It just sounds like separate drums mic'd up individually.
1: And and kind of weird sounding too.
2: Yeah, they do, sound, they do sound weird.
1: Well, it's not like you stick your ear next to a drum like that when you listen. That's exactly what I tell people. When you actually hear drums in real life, you're hearing the room and you're hearing some of the direct hit from the drum in front of you, but that's in a very perfect balance with its environment. Um, and just hearing one element like the... Uh, like a close mic drum on the sound just sounds weird, out of context. Mm.
2: no, so yeah, that's um, I, I I don't really have like a specific answer to that. I think it's just more like we're in the studio, and we're trying out stuff and we just kind of see what kind of works with the with the material. but um, yeah, just um, just just go with um uh, just maybe pre-production really helps for this kind of stuff, I think, because you just get an I just get an idea of what what instruments. I think are going to work together.
1: All right. I actually have one more question. Go for it. Um, Because I I feel like some people will get mad if I don't at least ask you about this. So... This is from Sasha Riesling. Um, He's asking, so with knowing that Papa Emeritus is a master of the whole ghost operation and knowing insights on how specific he actually is with every little micro decision, can you talk about the process for Opus Eponymous? Uh, have you already, he must have already known that his band will take off. I'm very interested in the way musical and production decisions were made in the whole process and thank you for being a part of the beginning of the coolest band in the world oh
2: cool thanks uh well ghost is um i would say is the the album that really put me in the map which really helped and i'm very grateful for that i was just with a uh, with papa in a bloodstock festival about three weeks ago and it was really nice to see him he's he's very grateful still for for my input on that album and and that was really nice because I really haven't seen him in a long time, so that was really cool. But with Ghost, it was I've been doing a bit of work for Rise Above, uh, which is Lee Dorian's label, and they released a demo, and everyone, everyone like in the underground was really going nuts about the demo. Um, and then Lee was semi- like, told me that he was thinking of signing them. Uh, and then he would like me to, to do the record. And I I went, okay, sure. Like, that would be great. I really like what I'm hearing. So, And then uh, Papa was playing with his other band back in the day in London. And we met um, outside uh, King's Cross station and went for a coffee. And we already been emailing each other. And I just said, look, I think this is the kind of sound we need. I think we need vintage drums, you know, like get like an old Ludwig and we get the snare tune this way I mean, I've got emails where I just kind of saying like all the kind of stuff we were to use and, you know, like kind of low gain kind of vintage, you know, like kind of old Marshall tone, even though we use Orange amps for that um, we use an old Ampeg um, the flip top one the Portaflex for the bass Um but the drums were recorded in Sweden, uh, in a very small studio. I wasn't there, but there the guy who was recording it was was very friendly and very helpful, and he followed my notes. I sent very specific notes of which mics I wanted where, and how do I how I wanted the the drums to, you, and then what kind of drums I wanted and stuff. And yeah, we just we just worked together really well. On it was like a team effort, and and uh, I think we just came up with this. You know this kind of really, I don't know, like vintage kind of classic sound, I guess, but still very clean. Yes, I mean we, me and Papa were we were talking a lot about um, the production on um, Merciful Fates, um, Melissa. That record sounds incredible. Um, so we we're thinking about that, but maybe with a bit more kind of Blue Oyster Cult kind of vibe, and you know, like I'm a sucker for old rock, so and I like I love old productions. Some bands, you know, like Steely Dan. You know, stuff like that sounds great CZ Top record sounds great So it was like, a, yeah, I think I kind of came up with the, with the sound of that And then, then I mixed it, took a while to mix Because, you know, we're experimenting some different kind of directions And then eventually we got there And I think he knew he was sitting on something good And then when the album came out, it just all exploded And, and, um, and it just went really well So
1: that's kind of how it went, really I guess that's the part where just wrapping this around we're talking about luck. I mean I I don't I wouldn't say it's lucky that you had that gig and did a great job with it, but that little bit of luck that you even met him in the first place um sure helped, but it wouldn't have made any difference if you hadn't been uh someone that was obsessed with recording mm. for all those years before that, I'm sure. Yeah. So, I think that it always takes a little bit of luck, but luck with work, yeah,
2: it does. and you know, and for the same reason i I still I still sometimes I hear bands like new bands that I really like, and I like or see a band live. I just think like wow, this this these guys are really, really good, and I know they have no budget, and I know you know they have nothing, but you know, sometimes I do pick up projects that I do for like next to nothing. And then I try to get them signed. And then if there's money from the advance, then they pay me and stuff like that. But I do take those risks because you never know who's going to be the next Ghost, you know, like the next band to like make it that big. Um, Obviously, a lot of the success with Ghost is that that, um, Papa works really hard. He works, he works fucking hard, that guy. And he's got the vision and he just works hard you know and a lot of musicians don't that's the problem so
1: it's very very true of course he works hard that's the thing is like like i was saying earlier i don't know a single person who's done great things or is great at something who doesn't work their mm. ass off it's true you just can't be lazy yeah well jaime thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate you taking the time i've had a great time speaking with you and uh You and Russ should do an episode with us sometime. Oh, we would love to. It'll be cool.
2: And and Andy as well. We've been talking uh, with Andy Snape.
1: If he'll do it. Hey, man. Andy, I've known Andy for maybe not as well as you guys, but I've kind of known him for like 10 years or something or 11 years now. And uh, he has an open invitation to come on whenever. So if you guys want to do the three of you, that would be great too.
2: Yeah, it would be really funny. Those two are really funny, man. I love those guys. They're great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, th- we should do that. I think it'll be cool. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks, man. No,
2: my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me in, to be part of this. You know, it's very cool. I appreciate it. And, you know, if there's anything I can help with or or if, you know, if anything's, anyone's got any questions or something, if there's a way of reaching me, I'm I'm happy to maybe not in writing, but maybe on of time is i'm very busy at the moment but yeah anything i can do to help and just let me know it's a pleasure
1: thank you for sure
0: the unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by the 2017 urm summit a once in a lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests including andrew wade kane churko billy decker fluff Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Erlund Microphones. Erlund Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same our microphones will help you discover clarity go to s e for more info to get in touch with the urm podcast visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today